for this series here, we're approaching Scripture in a different way, and we're trying to let uh, the stories speak. And we're trying to engage them with our senses, and we're trying to engage them with our imagination. We're trying to open ourselves to wonder and let the stories talk to us. Um, a, lot of, a lot of us have been brought up in, um, I guess, a style of encountering Scripture where the goal is to take something kind of large and reduce it down to a single point um, so it can become a one-line application in our life. And there's definitely merit and benefit in that. But um, for this series here, we're trying to do the opposite. We're trying to let the story open up and ask questions of it and soak in it. Um, the one-line system, isn't a, it's not, a, not necessarily a bad one, but the reductionist tendencies of it make it a limited one. Um, I love my parents deeply. They've been profoundly um, wonderful people in my life. The strange thing about my parents is I cannot remember a single thing they've ever taught me. Um, not di- not directly. I mean, I know like dad kind of like let me have a go with a lawnmower and things like that. But if I was to try and like make inspirational posters about what my parents, um, wise words of advice my parents have given me, I honestly can't remember any of it. My dad, my dad's wise words of advice kind of, they work in kind of concentric circles or some kind of like labyrinth pattern. He's, a, he's probably a mystic. Um, where he starts this kind of story and it just kind of rambles and wanders and eventually like mum usually just nudges him and, <laughs> and tells him to shut up. Um, so in terms of giving life advice, I can't remember very much my parents have ever told me. But there's a strange thing is, um, as I've grown up with them and as I continue to spend time with them, the people that they are continue to shape the person that I am. I've got a thousand little vignettes um, of the way that they've responded to situations in life, the way um, they've approached spirituality, the way they um, care for other people. And because of that, they've had a profound impact on my life and I carry them everywhere I go. And scripture for me is a little bit like this. Um, I, I, I struggle with... Uh, with, with one-liners, because for me, they feel really restrictive. But Scripture and the person of Jesus and God shown in Scripture continue to shape my life. And I feel like this series is a chance for us as a community to sit and soak with something. One of the um, benefits of getting to do the talky bit for a job is that you get to spend a week with a single story. And it's a, amazing how uh, this, the story, if you carry it with you, begins to um, resonate with the rest of life or conflict with the rest of life. And, um, and the rest of life is kind of enlightened by the story that you're carrying. This week, as I've been holding this um, Jesus growls at, um, Peter growls at Jesus story, it's been amazing how many situations and scenarios have kind of um, taken on a different slant through my engagement with this story. And I guess that's what I hope for us as a community as we go through this passage um, and as we go through this series, that each week we would sit with a single story and we would consider it and mull over it and read it over and over again and let it seep into us. And then that somehow through it, we might see life differently and be transformed by God in the process. So, cool. So this week... Uh, this week we are uh, talking about the story of G- um, Peter Grouse at Jesus. And I'm just going to give you a little background before we um, go through a, another reading of the story, um, this time by Amy and Sarah, who kindly were coerced into, uh, into creating their own version of the story for me. Uh, a little bit of background. So we're in the Gospels. This is the Gospel of Mark. Um, Israel, who's kind of like the uh, key player nation in the, uh, in the story, uh, going back through the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Israel is occupied by the Romans, uh, which they're not enjoying very much to say the least. Um, things have been going for so bad for so long that they, their kind of expectation is that God, things are so bad, God is going to have to do something sometime because he promised that he would look after us. And this, is, this scenario here is rubbish. The Roman occupiers are stealing our land, um, are trying, to make us, are trying to coerce us into their way of living, and we're not happy about it. So God surely is going to send the Messiah soon. So there's this expectation that, um, that God is going to deliver Israel um, and make them the kings of the world through sending the Messiah. 
there's most people, not all, but a lot of people believe that the Messiah is going to be a military um, political figure, a little bit like King David or Judas Maccabeus. Um, you can look up Judas Maccabeus on Wikipedia. He um, commonly known as the Hammer. Uh, he led a revolt against um, the, oh gosh, the Greeks, I think. Fainan, help me out. Who did Jack, Judas Maccabeus lead a revolt against? It was pre-Roman Empire, so it must have been the must have been the Greeks, um, and 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 he managed to hold out, um, hold them out for quite a long time before they they got crushed again, um, and so. This, this, this um, theme of messiahs popping up or potential messiahs popping up um, is, is really kind of like in the air at the, at the time of, um, that the, the Bible is referring to. And uh, they reckon there's at least 14 other messiahs that popped up and then uh, kind of gathered a little crew in the desert um, and tried to make a little army and the Roman Empire found them and crushed them and executed them or sent them off further into the desert to go and die. And so there's kind of this like... Uh, Oh, oh, this guy's the one. Oh, he's on the cross. Oh, oh. And this has been the pattern. So Israel hasn't given up on the hope of Messiah, but there's been a few false starts. And so whenever um, there's kind of talk of a Messiah, the Romans get very, very nervous just in case because the, um, the, um, the Israel's being a, an enormous pain in the bum for them. Um, and, and Israel gets a little bit excited because this might be the time where God's going to decisively act. Um, so this is the kind of context that Jesus is walking uh, into, and there's some excitement and confusion about Jesus. He's healing people. He's turning water into wine, which is all of these things are very symbolic of the age to come. Um, he's gaining popular support, but he's also quite strange. Um, he butts up against religious leaders. He doesn't seem to be that interested in gathering an army, and he refuses when people try and crown him. So there's some very messianic things about him but he doesn't quite fit the bill of the Messiah that they were expecting. Just before the passage that we're about to read, um, Jesus heals a blind man. And you can imagine the kind of excitement that's building up around, it says that there's crowds and then there's his disciples as well. And you can imagine after a healing um, as Jesus kind of, his popularity gains momentum, that there's a sense of excitement about what Jesus might do next. Um, the disciples have already, in previous chapters, just had arguments about who gets to hold positions of power when Jesus becomes um, the Lord of all things. Um, quite embarrassing um, <laughs> arguments about who's going to be at his right hand. Uh, James and John get their mum, send their mum to go and ask Jesus, which I think is just like so uh, primary school, <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> then, they, then they got her to go and ask someone out. Um, <laughs> they also said no. So, so, so around the disciples, there's this kind of um, anticipation and excitement. So as we go through the story again, I want you to um, enter into the pattern that we've been entering into for the last few weeks of opening yourself to the story, hearing it anew, if you can, um, thinking about the people and the characters in it and who you attach to and who you detest, um, who you feel like you're like thinking about their emotional situation, what they're going through, what they're experiencing, what they're hoping for. Um, and after we've read the story, we're going to just do some initial wonderings as a community. We've got a few stages of our wonderings this morning, um, but we're just going to do some initial wonderings. So after we've read the story, um, we're going to respond with questions like, I wonder what that would have been like, or I wonder how this person felt, or I wonder what this bit meant, or I wonder what that um, verse is talking about. So we're going to bring our wonderings to, um, to the story. So feel free to open yourself and engage. Uh, Amy and Sarah are going to come up and retell, retell the story. Without a, Without a microphone even. So listen up, yo. Wow, you're like a rapper. Yeah, good. Yeah. 
Thank you. Cool. Initial wonderings. What questions does that make you ask? What more do you want to know about? What gaps are there? What do you react to? the first time I've really looked at or heard the story and been like, man, that would have been completely terrifying for Peter to be like, me? Why would you care about what I think? Considering like, if you were thinking this person is the son of God and then to be asked by the son of God, well, I care about what your opinion is. Like that's bananas. Um, the uh, seemingly central idea um, that you can have, you think you can have the world, um, but in doing so you can forfeit your soul. You know, that sort of central message that, that resonates with me. Yeah, cool. What a table. <laughs> Just to hog the table. <laughs> uh, the bit at the end... Um, uh, where Jesus says some people aren't even going to die before I come back again, uh, always bugs me because I don't, I don't, don't see that happening. I don't know how we explain that. Good. More wonderings. I just wonder about the initial question, like who asks his friends, who do people say that I am? <laughs> Sounds almost like a bit of a paranoid question, but yeah. <laughs> you can imagine asking people. So, yeah, who, do, who does everyone say that I am? Kind of along those lines, the whole thing feels a little bit like a cult to me. Like, you know, he, he asks, who do you think I am? Or who do people say I am? And they respond with these historical figures that, I guess, have come back in his body. I don't know how they even saw that. And then when they say, you're the Messiah, he says, hey, let's just keep that a bit quiet. You know, like, there's people who aren't going to like this idea. The whole thing's a little bit kind of interesting. I've been wondering about... Amy. I'm Amy again. Um, Jesus' really strong reaction to... Peter not understanding that he wasn't going to be a political war leader messiah. Um, like a really strong get behind me Satan, like don't tempt me. Is that what it is? Don't tempt me. I, and I wonder 
if Jesus was ever tempted as a human to take the easy road, the one where he didn't have to get crucified? Like, did he react that strongly because there was something in him that was saying, do it the easy way? Yeah, I mean, even looking at the desert tests and then at Gethsemane, like those two things kind of bookending his ministry. Yeah. Um, Something along the lines of, I kind of resonate really with the sense of surrender. It's like, um, well, gain the world and lose your soul. It's like very, as as you say, you might take the easy way around, and that's to be human. But in most situations, speaking in my life, taking the hardest, the harder route is always there's always more joy at the end, even though you don't see it at the time. Yeah, so that sense of surrender is what I resonate with. Right. I'm not saying your side's letting the team down, but um, I am implying it. Yeah. Oh, good. Oh, 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 here we go. Oh, here we go. Wow. A little bit of manipulation goes a long way. I also just wanted to reiterate that it was a tough job and that he was human and that he did die and that he rose again. He was God as a man. So you know, if he stubbed his toe, it was going to hurt. And it, it was the hard job. Yeah, you can really feel that in his words coming out, can't you? Like the, yeah, the, the wrestle, yeah. Um, I wonder why we have to take up the cross if, you know, if Jesus has already taken up the cross and has done it all, why do we have to do it? You know, sort of like an insolent child. I don't want to do it. You've already done it. Why do I have to do it? <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Oh, yes, yes. I just love how um, patient Jesus is with his disciples, um, how he teaches them the same lesson over and over and over again, and um, to try and make it clear to them um, how many times he had to explain what he was going to do, how many times he had to tell people, quiet down, don't don't tell people about me. Um, And it's interesting, I've been reading Mark last week and pondering on that over and over again, Jesus sternly told them not to tell what happened to them, thinking, wow, that would have been quite a weird thing, um, watching these miracles happen and then him telling not to tell people. Yeah. It's, just, yeah, it's a strange thing to do, to go around healing people and then shh, just stop healing people, Jesus. would fix that easily. Just a follow-up from an inquiry across there about the confusion right at the end of that story, like before some of you die. The reign of God will be here amongst us. I wonder what it is that we miss if we can assume that what Jesus said actually happened. Awesome. Okay, cool, cool. Um, We're going to spend the next little section just entering into Peter's part of the story. Uh, Peter's been walking around with this guy for three years now. He would probably, you would assume, be, and you know, I'm sure ancient uh, understandings of friendship are perhaps different than than ours. But you'd assume that he'd uh, consider him a friend. That you'd consider that Peter would consider him someone that, having spent three years sitting under his teaching, if you think about the kind of concentric circles of, um, you know, Jesus and then disciples and then kind of followers and then crowds and then the rest of the world, you feel like Peter would feel like a fairly central figure in Jesus' life and feel like he would know him. He obviously felt like he knew him well enough to tell him he was wrong. So that says something about Peter's understanding of his proximity to Jesus. To be rebuked publicly and told that you've got me totally wrong must have been a very disturbing and potentially traumatic experience and quite unnerving. And I'd just like to explore for a minute the, the way in which um, it's incredibly hard sometimes to know the people that we know best when we think that we've got them wrapped up and that we understand them, how unknown they can still be. And I was listening to a story a couple of weeks ago, um, which we'll play this morning, um, from a podcast series called This American Life. Some of you... Um, know of it or listen to it uh, and this the, they pick a theme every week and this uh, theme was called what's going on in there which is about uh, stories about where um, people 
can't get inside the head of someone else or can't um, work out exactly what's going on without some more information. And so we're going to listen to the story. Um, um, Ira Glass is the guy who presents it. And at the very start, he says very quickly, welcome to This American Life, this is Ira Glass, um, which if you've listened to This American Life before, you'll know he's saying, welcome to This American Life. This is Ira Glass. So don't be confused by the opening sentence. That's what it is. Uh, and then he briefly introduces it. So when we were listening to the story, I want you to think about Peter and Jesus. And then I want you to think about you and Jesus as well. Awesome. American Life, Myra Glass. Today on our program, What's Going On in There? Stories where we go into situations where people think they know what's going on, and we find out what's really happening. We've arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2, RSVPA. So Larry's 20 years old, he's a student, and he's wondered what's going on in there his whole life about his own father. Larry's dad immigrated from Fujian province to America before Larry was born. Came here with nothing, worked 15 hours a day at a Chinese takeout restaurant that he owned, so Larry never saw him much, let alone talk to him. Larry's parents never tried to teach him Chinese, so Larry only speaks English. His dad only speaks Chinese, which, Larry says, is something that happens in the Fujianese community. Some of his friends can't talk to their parents either. And in Larry's case, he has always wondered what was going on in his dad's head. Bianca Gaver has a story. Larry's dad spoke two dialects of Chinese, Fujianese and Mandarin. Larry could barely tell the difference between the two. Larry's mom spoke to him in English. She felt that since he lived in America, learning English was his first priority. And she assumed that he'd just pick up Chinese. He didn't. So, without anybody meaning for it to happen, Larry wound up completely unable to speak to his dad. They've never had a single conversation. I can't even hold eye contact with him. It's just so hard. It's just, it's awkward. It was so awkward. It's like when you're on the subway and you think you saw someone that you know. Take a quick glance, you meet eyes, and you look away as quick as you look away because it's awkward. Larry's dad worked so late, sometimes Larry would go days without seeing him. And even when they did have a rare chunk of time together, it wasn't exactly quality father-son time. It was actually the opposite. Especially if we're like having dinner, dinner together or something and my mom's not home. Um, he'll call me down uh, and I'll sit at the table and... We'll just both be picking at the food, not saying a word. And then it would be complete silence the entire time you guys are eating? Yeah, definitely. Can you, like, list off the things that he would say to you that you could understand? It really just came down to, like, whether I was, one, healthy or, two, hungry. And if if I was not hungry and if I was healthy, then I was good. It was definitely upsetting especially growing up. But uh, I think it got to a point where I just didn't really register that feeling anymore. I, I just started feeling nothing for him when I would see him. He would just be basically a wall to me, just like a third wall, and just like I'd walk right past him. When Larry was eight, his little brother was born, and his parents sent his brother to Chinese school. And as he grew up, his brother could talk to his dad. The two of them got along great. Larry would watch the two of them making jokes with each other, laughing, smiling. Before that, he said he didn't even know his dad could laugh. And Larry's feelings shifted. He remembers thinking, oh, I was the testing ground. I was a mistake. He figured that his dad realized his blunder, not teaching Larry Chinese, and made up for it with his little brother, which was great for them, except he didn't make much of an effort to fix his relationship with Larry. I just, I just really just felt angry, angry towards him. I just felt like just strong resentment because in my head, I thought that, you know, he definitely does not love me. And so I'm not going to care about who this person is. When Larry was 14, the construction business that Larry's family owned in China took off. It was making more money than the takeout restaurant. So Larry's dad moved back to China in order to send more money home. He wrote Larry a letter to say goodbye. So it's about six, six pages long. On the left side, it's, um, it's, all, it's the Chinese, and on the right side, it's the English that my aunt translated. Larry got the letter after his dad had already gone. Here are some excerpts, read by Larry. Son, I remember the days after you were born. I was thankful because your arrival brought me a brilliant outlook in life. When I wrote this letter, I struggled tremendously. 
However, it is a father's duty to mentor his son. I cannot communicate with you. Time flies. In the blink of an eye, I will turn 40 years old. In another two or three years, you will leave mom and I to attend college, learn the necessary skills, be independent. Sorting and organizing your books to keeping your desk clean will leave a good and lasting impression on others. Before you go to school every morning, remember to eat something. Do not pressure yourself. As long as you are unafraid of working hard, there will be a path for you. I cannot speak English, and I've been able to support my family all these years. So relax and do your best. Thank God for giving me the courage to write this letter to my oldest son. I believe deeply that to gain anything, we must surrender something. Conversely, anything that you surrender, you must gain something back. Pardon for my sharing. Ba. I read it through the first time. And by the end of it, I'm really crying. It just really hit me hard because that was the first time I ever said, I love you. Every line just made me start crying over again. So this is like one moment where you realize everything you thought was totally wrong. Yeah, I felt so guilty because it was basically my fault for not understanding that this is actually how he feels. Alrighty. Let's just spend a couple of minutes talking about that story first. Any responses to to that? What did that make you feel? What do you still wonder? He's on fire. Just in that last part, he said um, it was my. It could have been my responsibility to understand how my dad felt. If you know what I mean, yeah. Yeah, interesting line, hey. I think that Larry equated not communicating with his dad with not being loved was really profound. Yeah. Cool. Um, Now let's have a think about Peter and Jesus and how Peter would have been feeling in that scenario. If we en- to enter into Peter's story and Peter's part in that story, how might Peter have been feeling? What might he have been experiencing? What might have been difficult or strange for him in that? I can't remember where I, <clears throat> where I heard this, but just um, remember someone talking about a relationship where they, he and this person were divided by a common language. And um, how in Larry's story, it's so clear, the, d- the division, the separation, the gulf is so clear because they, they literally speak different languages and how when you share a language with someone as Jesus and Peter did, as, as we do in our own families ordinarily, and when you share a context... Um, that lack of understanding, that gulf that exists between you and another person can, can, you can be unaware of it. It can take you by stealth and it can take an experience like Peter has with Jesus there to suddenly wake you up to the fact that, that you, yeah, you, you're actually divided by a common language. The language that you share is actually... Um, deluding you and making you feel like you know exactly what's going on with this person when you don't. Observations, wonderings, emotional reactions. (laughs) How might Peter have gone away from that conversation? There's lots of options. How might you have gone away from that conversation? Just completely confused. I would have just been like, what just happened? And did that really just happen? Like, there's so much coming into play. Like, you'd be standing there being like, I'm pretty sure I just had a conversation with the Son of God. But he was mad at me, and I you like I just would be completely dumbfounded 
and much as I am now trying to express how dumbfounded I would be, I would just be falling over my words and being like, uh, uh. I wonder if like, so he was this little Jewish boy and growing up in a Jewish family. So like the Messiah would have been this like superhero figure for him that was going to come and all in one moment, his like whole childhood lifelong conception of this superhero messiah was just sort of like deconstructed and in that he was publicly like humiliated in front of his mates and and that would be very difficult and yeah just the shock of like having your whole like um dreams of this person who's going to save you just like deconstruct in such a short period of time like yeah Yeah, I think that um, uh, to follow on from what you've said, on the one hand, you've got this, yes, you got it right, I'm the Messiah. And no, you got it wrong. Messiahs die. Um, And so there's this new question. So what's a Messiah? I think it's very difficult that even as Peter has to come to terms with this new kind of idea of what the Messiah would be, to know that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and most of Israel won't be on board. Because I think, um, yeah, to know that not only do you have to have this new idea of a Messiah, but you're completely on your own (laughs) is is also very difficult. I imagine that would be very isolating. and, um, And, yeah, like... Yeah, I, I think that that would be very hard. Yeah, that's a massive limb to go out on, isn't it? Like the idea that all of Israel will naturally be behind the Messiah, but if we follow this guy and it's not the Messiah we think it is and we end up on our own, then, yeah, huge gamble. Um, I've had two parts to my thought. The first is just thinking about the long picture of Pete, the long long view picture of Peter that if he's the one that wrestled the most he's also the one that you know they finally chose to kind of start the church so he might have had a pretty shocking time in this picture but further down the track he he was you know given such responsibility. Um, The other side to what I've been reflecting on is kind of related back to the last story about um, thinking about things being lost in translation about well the resonance of almost feeling like whether Peter and Jesus are kind of talking a different language because Jesus has a, I don't know, uh, maybe an easier um, connection to God and those sort of thoughts and just trying to then translate that to the story before and and even trying to take it into our world now that um, we just had a little moment earlier on with Sophia coming over to our table and realising that, you know, even... Even in our midst, we've got someone... We At this table, I think most of us don't speak Auslan, so we can't understand, you know, even here amongst us, you know, necessarily what somebody else is saying. And then we're keeping this whole conversation going and probably Sophia's here not picking up any of this. So it's interesting that this loss of translation happens right in our midst too. Yeah, absolutely. I guess, yeah. My initial response to this is, was um, just thinking about whether Peter <laughs> accepted, like we, we're cheating because we believe that Jesus is Messiah 2,000 years on. So what we bring to the story is a very different experience than what Peter did. Um, whether G, whether, how real was the wrestle for Peter of going, is this the Messiah or not? Like if this, I know what a Messiah is and Jesus is saying he's not that, which one wins in that space? We're going to look at... Um, and listen for a moment, just going to add one more layer onto the story um, with the Archbishop Rowan Williams. Um, I, I'm warning you two things. One, he has tremendous eyebrows. Please don't let that distract you because um, they are impressive, but they're not the point. Um, and secondly, um, the, the clip's slightly out of sync. 
Um, and it's very, very short. So you're going to have to listen right from the outset. There's not kind of, kind of warm up. So um, I'm just preparing you for those two things. Don't be distracted by the eyebrows. Um, don't be distracted by the beautiful people. Um, and secondly, don't um, um, just listen from the very start because it's, um, it's quite short. So we're just going to add this little layer onto the story. In the New Testament, one of the things that Jesus and the apostles are always saying to us is, look, you're actually living in a world that you think you're on top of. You're keeping the rules, you're holy, you're in with God, it's all looking wonderful. Actually, actually, the person who knows the truth is the person who says, I'm lost. I, I need to let go of all that so that I can arrive where I am. And, says Jesus, put your hand in mine, I'll take you to that place. And that feels like a hell of a risk, because it is. Because think of the, that great story in the gospel where the, the rich man comes to Jesus and says, I want to be with you, you're really exciting, you're really cool. And Jesus says, okay, fine, um, then just drop everything and come. And he suddenly thinks, well, actually, I was at the time. <laughs> I've got to go. <clears throat> okay, we're going to listen to it one more time because it is so short. And this time, the New Testament, full glory, the eyebrows. I think in the New Testament, one of the things that Jesus and the apostles are always saying to us is, "Look, you're actually living in a world that you think you're on top of. You're keeping the rules. You're holy. You're in with God. It's all looking wonderful. Actually, actually, the person who knows the truth is the person who says, "I'm lost. I, I need to let go of all that." so that I can arrive where I am. And, says Jesus, put your hand in mine, I'll take you to that place. And that feels like a hell of a risk, because it is. Because, think of the, that great story in the Gospel where the, the rich man comes to Jesus and says, I want to be with you, you're really exciting, you're really cool. And Jesus says, okay, fine, um, then just drop everything and come. And he suddenly thinks, well, Actually, I was at the time. <laughs> I've got to go. <clears throat> I was at the time. So Jesus points out in this little piece that there's a massive gap between Peter's human agenda and God's agenda. That the tale of the Messiah is actually death and resurrection, not glory to glory. That if we're to follow him, we have to take up our cross. Which I think when Jesus is describing to Peter that he's about to die and then says, you too will have to take up your cross, it's probably getting pretty real. I wonder, I wonder what the parallels are for us in this as we carry the story in our everyday lives, the divine agenda versus the human. I wonder, confronted with the same question, what our responses, what our fears are. I wonder, I wonder where Jesus is unfamiliar to us when we think we've got a most wrapped up. I wonder what steps we can take to open ourselves to Jesus as he is, not just Jesus as we currently conceive him. For me, the language um, in this passage is so binary and so strong. Um, I have a really visceral reaction to it. The idea of trusting God in this way is threatening and scary and in some ways really unfamiliar. I wonder what, I wonder why letting go of our picture of Jesus is so difficult. 
Does anyone want to speak to that? <laughs> go, go, gadget cat. Probably ascertain that I always want to speak to everything. <laughs> I think for myself anyway, I would love to be able to outsource thinking about life. So if I have a Jesus who is just this rock-solid figure, I was thinking about it just now I was, when you are talking and I was listening. I was thinking, man, I miss Jesus. Like I miss super easy, born-again, early-days Christian Jesus who just knows everything and is both the question and the answer and has everything solved in advance and knows the plans that he has for you and they're all good and not to prosper you and stuff like that. And even that saying glory to glory, like I used to love that saying and now I loathe that saying because I don't find it to be true in a black and white sense. Um, But that thing of handing over my idea of what I think Jesus is like requires me to instead sit with this question of, well, maybe Jesus has to show me what he is like. And that takes a lot longer. And I would like to have an answer now so that I may progress with faith, not live with faith and live into faith or a deeper faith. Anyone else? Oh, this table's hot. I guess I was just thinking about um, if if I place myself in that situation. So 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 Jesus comes up. Um, Peter says, "You are the Messiah," and that has a whole there's an idea of what that means in his head. And then Jesus kind of says, "Well, yeah, but actually, that's not at all what you think it means when you say that." And so if he came to us today and and I said, "Okay, well, you know, Jesus was." God on earth, it's the same thing of, I have all these ideas of what that means. Now, it's a bit different because we have hindsight, and so we kind of, we have got a reveal, a revelation which they were in the midst of at the time, but it's still that same thing of, yeah, maybe that's true, but but it's still, like, you're still just bringing those same preconceptions of what that means, and the whole point is that you don't get it, which is... um that's probably like, that's the gateway to the bigger truth, but it does leave you completely in the lurch in terms of, yeah, what what do I think I know? How do I, how do I progress from this? Like, is it just a matter of put a hand out and see what happens? I do not think that word means what you think it means. Princess Bride, anyone? Never mind, okay. Um, I think that we get attached to our like really certain picture of who Jesus is because certainty is just really attractive and like our lives are full of such uncertainty that we want things that are uh, closed and have a full stop and we can comprehend but people are open not closed and relationships are uncertain not certain and in the end Certainty is kind of death, but life is uncertainty and being open to surprise and change and things. Um, ambiguity, yeah, it's it, it's open rather than closed, but that's also really unsafe. Um, so, yeah, it's scary, but, yeah, so we, we like to comprehend things because that's like wrapping ourselves up in a blanket, but it's not its not living so much. And I think that's what Jesus wants. I guess that was kind of the point of God coming to earth as a human being, to show that he is life and a relationship, not just a set of rules. It's the difference between the Old Testament and the New, I, I feel. The one thing Peter had at the end of all of that is he still had Jesus. And I guess what I want um, us to set with this morning is this idea of unfamiliarity and and familiarity. That, again, we're tempted by binaries here to say we know nothing about Jesus. 
Um, so we're left in this kind of no man's land. Or we know everything about Jesus. We've got him all wrapped up. I know who he is and I'll tell, I'll tell him who he is. But I wonder whether the, the path of Christianity is actually relational, where there's a sense of familiarity that we know we know something of Jesus, that we trust God to reveal himself to us. But in that process that we never actually solidify or petrify that picture of Jesus, that we're constantly open to the fact that our perception may have so much more to grow and to gain, that Jesus didn't abandon Peter when he rebuked him. He didn't send him out. He didn't walk away. He told him who he was, and then he kept on traveling with him. And it happened again and again and again and again with Peter. And then, as has been mentioned, Peter was one of the kind of bedrock people in founding, founding the church. And I... Ben? What's that? Oh, um, oh I'm going to wrap up here. So do you want to add? Yeah? Yeah, you can. I think um, uh, just when you said that at the end of the day, he still had Jesus, I think going back to the story of the the guy who had the father who didn't speak the same language as him, he also had his father. And I think it's very easy to mourn or grieve over something that we feel like we've lost when we um, when something in our mindset changes or something in our perception changes. But I think that we can also see that as an opportunity to get to know someone in a different way and have a deeper kind of experience. And, and maybe what we're grieving wasn't actually as good as what is coming. Yeah. Yeah. So this morning, um, we're going to take communion. <laughs> and there's all kind of, kinds of funny parallels going on here, but one of them is the kind of the story we're carrying right now and then the week that we're about to live. And what I love to think about is that as we carry the story together this week and enter into our weeks, that that hangs in the background and that the Jesus of the Bible and then the Jesus that we encounter in everyday life or as we go about everyday life will continue to transform us and will continue to shape us and will continue to speak to us. That that Jesus would continue to unveil our agendas that are human in the worst sense of human um, and continue to reveal the agendas that are human and divine in the best sense of those things, that will continue to let go, to, be, to pre, be prepared to be unfamiliar with this person of Jesus, but not actually let go of the way that he holds us and loves us and cares for us, that we wouldn't let go of the Jesus that, um, the bits of Jesus that we know and are right, but would be open to the unfamiliarity of how he might um, reveal himself to us in new ways today. So, uh, I have up here these um, beautiful um, images of white, white, um, blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus. I didn't color them in, so you're just going to have to um, believe me when I say that. Um, if you feel like today um, there's, you need a new sense of openness of the um, Jesus that you're over-familiar with, or um, there's parts of your agenda that's clashing with Jesus right now that you would like to let go of, um, you can come and take one of these, and then as we collect the offering, um, sorry, as we collect communion together, you can um, exchange your um, picture of Jesus, literal and metaphorical, um, in the bucket and take um, and com- take communion. So, um, we're going to stand up in, in a semi-orderly fashion, as orderly as we can. Just go and collect communion and then bring it back to our tables. And if you'd like to exchange um, um, a, a Jesus this morning, this one for that one, then you're more than welcome to come and grab one of these as well. So um, you may stand and collect communion. Don't eat and drink because we'll eat and drink together at the end. So, And then we're going to wrap up in about one minute. So that'll be great. Oh, I maybe should have said, um, just take a cup and a cracker rather than the whole tray. Sorry. It might just end up easier. So if you did take a whole tray, <laughs> stop thief, please return it. Um, <laughs> or you can distribute it to your table. That's fine. Mark, Mark's thirsty this morning. It doesn't really matter, does it? Good point. <laughs> 
stressless, Shane. If you'd like to come and take some of Mark's communion, you can steal that because I'm going to. You can steal I can steal some. Thank you for sharing your Jesus with me. Very generous. Josh and Phoebe really need to work on the com- communication as a couple. They they doubled up. So did Graham and Donna. Unbelievable. Um, <laughs> I'm on clean up today, apparently. Jesus, Jesus who loves us so deeply, Jesus who we know but don't have wrapped up yet, Jesus whose agenda is higher than ours, Jesus who is patient with us as we do our best but still get it wrong. Jesus who is kind. Jesus who told us to forgive our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. Jesus whose kingdom is coming now, even though we already struggle to see it sometimes. Jesus loves us, yes, we know. Jesus, this morning we invite you to transform us, to show us your kingdom, to teach us to take up our cross, to show us what that might mean for us this week. Jesus, help us to let go. God, rid us of God. Jesus, hold us. Be gentle with us. Stay close to us as we go about this week. In your loving name, as we eat and drink together.